Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter uh, 46 for our time of study in God's Word uh, this morning. Uh, We are coming back this morning to our series through the book of Genesis. And as we uh, continue in our series through this book, we come today to Genesis chapter 46 And my goal this morning is to try to cover uh, verses 1 through 30. Kumi made reference to the question that that they were asking last night. He doesn't remember the question, but I told him to text it to me during the sermon so I can make sure I answer it uh, uh, in the message somewhere. But if you want to give a title to the message this morning, it would be Moving Into a Great Deliverance. Moving Into a great uh, deliverance. As some of you um, did, I, I grew up in a military household. My dad was uh, in the Marine Corps. And growing up in a, a military house, um, I, I lived in six different states before I began my freshman year of high school. And some of those states uh, more than once. Uh, Prior to starting the ninth grade, uh, our family uprooted and moved from one state to another seven different times. And each time we would make a move from one state to another, we were often left having to make adjustments to a new school and a new church and new friends and uh, new uh, neighbors and even sometimes new accents that we had to get used to. When we lived in Texas, uh, Amarillo, Texas, people would preface their opinion by saying, I reckon. I reckon, and then they would give their opinion on something. When we lived in South Carolina, everyone said, y'all, uh, when, when speaking. When we moved to Indiana, people didn't say y'all, they said you guys. And so we had to make that adjustment. But all those moves that we had to make during those years that I was growing up are absolutely nothing compared to the move that we see Jacob and his family experiencing today in Genesis chapter 46. Parents, imagine making a move in which it is not just you moving, but it's you and your 12 adult children who are uprooting and moving along with their spouses and your 50-plus grandchildren uprooting all at once and making a move elsewhere. And imagine that you're 130 years old when you are making this move and in very frail health, and you have thousands of livestock to move with you. And imagine that you are not just moving from one house to another or one neighborhood to another or one state to another, but you are moving from one country to another country with a very different culture and language. That's the kind of move that we witness happening in our passage today. There are bad moves that we see happening in the book of Genesis, such as when Abraham went down to Egypt back in Genesis chapter 12, or when Lot moved towards Sodom in Genesis chapter 13. 
Yet the big move that we see happening in this chapter has all the earmarks of a good move that is done in the right way. In fact, we can call this a move into a great deliverance. Jacob and his family will leave the famine-ravaged land of Canaan and move to a land of plenty ruled over by a man of God whose name is Joseph. You'll recall that 22 years have gone by since Joseph's brothers had sold Joseph into slavery down in Egypt, and they thought, having done that, that they were done with Joseph once and for all. But long story short, God blesses Joseph and causes him to rise in power to become the second most powerful man in all of the land of Egypt. Joseph ascends to that position, we saw, having interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, foretelling seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh appoints Joseph to be his vice regent over the land of Egypt and assigns him the task of leading the people of Egypt through the process of saving up grain and food during the seven years of plenty and then managing the distribution of the food during the seven years of famine that would follow. During the second year of that famine, Jacob is in Canaan and he sends his sons to Egypt to buy some food. So they go down to Egypt and they run right into Joseph, but they do not know that it is Joseph that they have run into. Joseph is disguising his identity from his brothers and he runs them through a series of tests. And in the end, Joseph discerns that his brothers are becoming very different men than the men they were 22 years prior. God is doing a work of grace in their hearts. Their conscience is tormented for what they did to Joseph 22 years prior. And they show how different they are now by how they stick with their brother Benjamin when Joseph threatens to imprison Benjamin in Egypt. And in what proved to be a watershed moment, Judah steps forward and pleads on behalf of of his brother Benjamin and essentially offers himself up as a substitute prisoner in the place of Benjamin. Joseph is so blown away by what Judah does in this moment that he breaks down weeping and finally reveals himself to his brothers. His brothers immediately are frightened by this revelation But Joseph assures them that God has sovereignly allowed everything to happen, even their sins against him, so that Joseph could be down in Egypt and be blessed of God and now provide them this great deliverance during this time of severe famine. Joseph kisses his brothers. He weeps on each of them until they're sure that he has truly forgiven them He then tells his brothers to hurry back to Canaan and tell their father to come and live in Egypt together with the whole family so that Joseph can provide for them in Egypt. And in Genesis 45, we saw a few weeks ago how Joseph's brothers returned to their father in Canaan. They tell him the good news that Joseph is alive and that he's 
in power in the land of Egypt and that he's inviting Jacob and the whole family to come and live with him in Egypt. We saw how Jacob's heart stopped upon hearing this news, but then his spirit revives and he agrees to accept Joseph's invitation to come to Egypt. And Genesis 45 ends with Jacob saying, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. And this is where we left off the last time that we were in Genesis. What we find in our chapter today is the story of the actual move that Jacob and his family make from Canaan to Egypt, from the land of famine to what is truly right now a land of plenty. And the way we'll break down our look at this text today is we'll observe five developments in the story of Jacob and his family's big move from Canaan to Egypt. The first of these developments we find beginning in verse 1. Let's word it this way. Jacob first goes to Beersheba to worship God and seek his will. He first goes to Beersheba to worship God and seek his will. Observe what Jacob does in verse 1. The text says, So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Notice that Jacob is called Israel here which makes sense because this is a hugely consequential move that is going to shape the rest of Israel's history. And the text tells us that on the way to Egypt, Jacob comes to the city of Beersheba. Jacob was almost certainly living in Hebron at the time that he is making this move. So Beersheba was right on the way to uh, Egypt from Hebron. And Beersheba was about 23 miles south of the city of Hebron. And Jacob stops here, and he would have had a number of good reasons to stop here. Many years prior, his grandfather Abraham had planted a tree here and worshipped God in Beersheba. We saw that in Genesis 21. It was in Beersheba where God appeared to Isaac and told him not to be afraid and that he would bless him and multiply him. And in response, Isaac, who was Jacob's father, built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And that's really what Jacob is coming here for. As for Jacob, we're told that he's stopping in Beersheba essentially to worship God. The text tells us that he offered sacrifices. Literally, he sacrificed sacrifices. And the plural indicates that this is a generous act of worship on Jacob's part. The narrator tells us that Jacob offers sacrifices to whom? To the God of his father, Isaac probably using the same altar that Isaac had built years earlier. 
We all know that Jacob had some daddy issues that he had to work through over the years. His father, the text of the Bible tells us that his father loved his brother Esau more than Jacob. His father wanted to give Esau the blessing rather than give that blessing to Jacob, even though God had promised that it would be Jacob who would be prevailing and served by his older brother Esau. Jacob's dad, Isaac, was certainly not a perfect man, but he was God's man. And here we see Jacob, a deeply flawed son, worshiping the true God of his deeply flawed father, Isaac. And that's the way it should be. The fact that Jacob stops to worship God here before he continues on toward Egypt, I think reveals volumes about the state of Jacob's heart at this stage of his life, that he would take the time to worship God here shows us that God is now a higher priority in his life than Joseph is. In addition to that, there is merit to the suggestion of some commentators who say that Jacob is stopping here to wait for a green light from the Lord before he goes any further toward Egypt. Beersheba represents something of a point of no return for Jacob. Stopping in Beersheba is kind of like stopping in the city of Blythe or Needles, California, before exiting California onto wherever else you are traveling. Once Jacob leaves Beersheba, he'll soon find himself traveling through harsh wilderness most of the rest of the way to the land of Egypt. The Jewish commentator Nahum Sarna goes as far as to say, and I quote, Jacob seems to experience a sudden reluctance to continue the journey. And there's merit to this suggestion and even revealed in the text, as we'll see. Keep in mind that Abraham got into trouble when he left Canaan and went down into Egypt many years prior back in Genesis 12. Keep in mind that God specifically spoke to Isaac, Jacob's father, during a time of famine in Genesis 26 and told him, don't go down to Egypt. Stay here in this land. So Jacob no doubt remembers these moments. Jacob also may be realizing that even though Joseph and the Pharaoh have both invited him to move to Egypt with his family, God has not yet spoken directly to him about this, to make this move. So it seems that Jacob stops in Beersheba to worship God and to wait for explicit direction and confirmation from the Lord. And this direction from the Lord comes to Jacob, which brings us to the second development in this story of Jacob and his family's big move from Canaan to Egypt. Number two, God affirms Jacob's move to Egypt and gives him precious promises. Observe what happens in verse two. The text says, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, 
Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Jacob knows it's God who is speaking. God has spoken to him before. He recognizes the voice. And in saying, here I am, Jacob is saying, Lord, I'm I'm ready to hear you speak to me. And I stand ready to do whatever it is that you tell me to do. Jacob is God's man now. And he stands at God's beck and call, ready to hear the will of God and to do whatever it is that God tells him to do. If God wants him to make a U-turn and head back into the land of Canaan, Jacob will do that. If God wants him to continue on toward Egypt, Jacob will do that. Listen to what God says in verse 3 to Jacob. He said, I am God. The God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Think about that, that God would deem it necessary to tell Jacob to not be afraid to go down to Egypt indicates that Jacob was almost certainly experiencing some fears about moving away from Canaan and going down to Egypt. As the commentator uh, Leupold suggests, Jacob's fear must have been primarily a fear of acting contrary to the divine will. Jacob wants to know, is this what God really wants me to do? Jacob would have certainly wanted to go to Egypt to see his son Joseph, whom he hasn't seen for 22 years. But he is not about to do that without explicit direction from God. But God is giving Jacob an assurance here. And he's saying, don't be afraid. Stop being afraid to go down to Egypt, Jacob. You're not doing the wrong thing to make this move. The Jewish Hamash is also probably right in suggesting that Jacob is experiencing something of a frightening premonition that he is embarking on an exile that's going to, down the road, cause his family enormous harm in the centuries to come. Jacob is certainly mindful of God's promise to Abraham many years prior when God said to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 13, God said, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. By the way, I don't think that's chapter 12. I think it's chapter 15. So that's God actually told Abraham that there's a day coming when your descendants are going to be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they're going to be enslaved. They're going to be oppressed 400 years. So Jacob would know this, And probably has a sense that this big move that he and his family are making right now is very well taking his family into the very land where this oppression is going to occur somewhere down the road. Whatever fears that Jacob had in this moment, God speaks specifically to those fears and encourages Jacob to not be afraid to go down to Egypt. This is the right move. 
for Jacob and his family to make. God then speaks promises of assurance to Jacob. Listen to what he says. He says, for I will make you a great nation there. Back in Genesis 12, verse 2, God had said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation in Genesis 18, 18, God spoke again about Abraham and said, I will make a great and mighty nation of him. And now here God is speaking to Jacob and he's saying, I will make you a great nation there. Speaking of Egypt. So Jacob already knew from God's promises to Abraham and Isaac that God would make of him a great nation but now he learns the location where God is going to make of him a great nation, and that is Egypt. In other words, Egypt will be the womb in which the nation of Israel forms. So this is a wonderful assurance for Jacob, not just that his descendants are going to survive, but that they're going to thrive in Egypt and become a great and a mighty nation there. God is a powerful God, and he uses unexpected locations to build greatness into his people. He forged Moses' character while Moses spent 40 years on the backside of the wilderness. He made Daniel great in the land of Babylon. He made Esther great in the land of Persia. He made Joseph great in the land of Egypt. And now he's promising to make of Jacob's descendants a great nation in, of all places, Egypt, a pagan land. Whatever circumstances you may find yourself in right now, even if you consider your circumstances to be less than ideal, don't underestimate God's ability to help you to flourish and become great. In that very spot. God then says to Jacob in verse 4. He says I will go down with you. To Egypt. And I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close. Your eyes. Meaning that Joseph will be with him when he dies. And Joseph will be the one. Who closes Jacob's eyes after he breathes his last. On one level, the promises here in verse 4 are personal promises that God is making to Jacob. God is telling Jacob, I'm going to go down with you to Egypt and I'm going to bring you up again. And that promise personally was fulfilled when Jacob's body was brought back from Egypt to Canaan to be buried. But on another level, there's a national element to God's promise to Jacob here. He's just told Jacob that he will make of him a great nation while in Egypt. So when he says that he will surely bring him up again, God is promising that in the years to come, after Israel becomes a great nation, God will bring Jacob's descendants up from Egypt and back to the land of Canaan. So these are great promises from God to Jacob and honestly this instruction from the Lord and these promises from the Lord are all that Jacob needs to hear having heard these words of 
direction and assurance from God, Jacob loads up and travels on toward Egypt, never to see the land of Canaan in his lifetime again. And this leads us to the third development in the story of Jacob and his family's big move to Egypt. Number three, Jacob takes his whole family and brings them with him to Egypt. Observe what the text says in verses five through seven. It says, Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him. Verse 7, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Speaking of Jacob bringing them with him. In verse 5, we're told that the sons of Israel carried their father in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. But make no mistake, Jacob is the man in charge of this move. In verse 7, the text says his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters and all his descendants, he Jacob brought with him to Egypt. Jacob is the grand patriarch here, the leader of the family who's bringing his family with him to the place that God has provided. But because he's 130 years old, he must be carried by his sons in one of the wagons. Now, who all did Jacob bring with him on this journey. That's what the next ton of verses is really all about. The narrator provides us a census of those who came to Egypt with Jacob. And we're going to just read through these verses and observe all those that are traveling with Jacob on this move from Canaan to Egypt. And he starts with the sons of Leah, or essentially the descendants of Jacob through his wife, Leah. Look at verses 8 and following. It says, Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben, Hanuk and Palu and Hezron and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, and Jamin, and Ohad, and Jachin, and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The fact that Shaul is said to be the son of a Canaanite woman indicates that evidently Simeon had taken an additional wife who was a Canaanite and had a son through her. The fact that this merits special mention that she was a Canaanite indicates that evidently all of the other sons of Jacob married a non-Canaanite woman, with the one exception of Judah, 
whom we were told back in Genesis 38 had taken a Canaanite wife. Well, the narrator continues in verse 11, the sons of Levi, who was a son of Leah, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Er, and Onan, and Shelah, and Perez, and Zerah. But the narrator adds, Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. So their names are not going to be included among the number of those who went with Jacob to Egypt. The text continues in the middle of verse 12. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. Verse 13, the sons of Issachar, Tola and Puva and Job and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sered and Elon and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padanaram with his daughter Dinah, all his sons and his daughters numbered 33. Actually, the number of Jacob's sons and his daughter Dinah through Leah, if you add them up, who went with him to Egypt, is 32. But adding uh, Jacob's name into the mix makes the number 33. Back in verse 8, the narrator alerts us to the fact that he's giving the names of the sons of Israel. What does he mean by that? Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. So the narrator has to include Jacob's name somewhere in the number, and he seems to throw Jacob's name into the grouping with Leah's descendants. Then the narrator tells us about the sons of Zilpah, who was Leah's servant through whom Jacob had sons. These are descendants of Jacob who went with him from Canaan to Egypt. Verse 16, the sons of Gad, Ziphion and Hagi, Shuni and Esbon, Eri and Arodi and Areli, the sons of Asher, Imna and Ishva and Ishvi and Bariah and their sister Sarah. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah. And she bore to Jacob these 16 persons who went with Jacob from Canaan to Egypt. Then we're told about Jacob's descendants through his wife, Rachel. Verse 19, the sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Out of Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. And now here's actually the biggest surprise in the list. The sons of Benjamin, Bela and Becher and Ashbel, Gera and Naaman, Ahi and Rosh, Mupim and Hupim. And Ard, you add those up, that's 10 sons in all. These are the sons of Rachel, the writer says, who were born to Jacob. There were 14 persons in all. We conjectured when you kind of do the timeline and the math um, on, on this, we conjectured several weeks ago that Benjamin 
uh, could be around 30 years of age at this time. So it's pretty amazing to consider that Benjamin, at the age of possibly 30, has 10 sons by this point. How many of you men are 30 years old or somewhere around there? You're not 30, Brian. <laughs> Imagine having 10 sons at that age. This would have meant that Benjamin would have had to have married young, uh, and it may be an indication that he had more than one wife through whom he had these sons. And then finally, there are the sons of Bilhah, who was Rachel's servant through whom Jacob had sons. Verse 23, the sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jazeel, and Guni, and Jezer, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to his daughter, Rachel, and she bore these to Jacob. There were seven persons in all. So you add up all of these persons, and here's what you have. Verse 26, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two all the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. So the focus of this census here is not simply to tell us everyone who's traveling with Jacob to Egypt. It's not even simply to tell us everyone who was a part of Jacob's family, counting his wives, for example, or the wives of his sons and grandsons. But as the passage says, the focus is on those who were his direct descendants. So it would be Jacob and anyone who descended from him and was his blood. And the narrator is telling us that first that all the direct descendants of Jacob who came to Egypt were 66 in all. When you add Joseph and his two sons who were already in Egypt... That makes 69. And then when you add Jacob into that number, you end up with 70. Notice the summary statement. All the persons of the house of Jacob, which would include Jacob himself, who came to Egypt, were 70. So the writer has provided us with a list of Jacob and his descendants who ended up in Egypt at the culmination of this move emphasizing the fact that Jacob is right now going to the place where God is leading him to go to the place of plenty of God's provision. And Jacob has succeeded in bringing his whole family with him to this place. But as they were approaching Egypt, Jacob singles out one of his sons and to, to essentially lead the family to the specific spot in Egypt where they were supposed to settle. And this brings us to the fourth development in this story of Jacob and his family's big move from Canaan to Egypt. Number four, Jacob sends Judah ahead 
to lead the family to Goshen, which is where they were supposed to dwell. Notice what Jacob does in verse 28. Now he, Jacob, sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. The language in the text here is clear. As they're approaching the land of Egypt, Jacob pulls Judah aside and commissions him and sends Judah to Joseph to go on ahead of the family to meet up with Joseph in Egypt in order to get directions from Joseph as to where they as a family need to stop and settle in the land. And so he sends Judah to Joseph. Joseph would talk to uh, Joseph and get directions from Joseph and then return back to the family as they're traveling toward Egypt and then lead the family. Judah would lead the family to the place where they are to settle. That Jacob would assign this task to Judah is a remarkable thing, and it reveals that Judah had his father's confidence in fullest measure. Just think about this for a moment. It's striking that Jacob did not ask Reuben, his oldest son, to do this task for him. He didn't ask his second and third oldest son, Simeon and Levi. He asked Judah, his fourth oldest son, to engage in this task of meeting up with Joseph and then leading the family, being out front and leading the family to the place where they are to settle. This speaks wonderful things about the work that God has done in Judah's life, the change that God has wrought in Judah. Judah has come a long way, has he not? Judah didn't start off so hot, did he? Back in Genesis 37, it was Judah who told his brothers, hey, we can make some money off of Joseph. Instead of killing him, let's sell him as a slave to some traders who are on their way down to Egypt. In Genesis 38, we saw that Judah leaves his family and goes off and marries a Canaanite woman, has three sons through her. The oldest son is killed by God because of his wickedness. The second oldest is killed by God because of his wickedness. Judah then fails to keep his promise to his daughter-in-law, who ends up playing the prostitute and gets Judah to sleep with her so that she could sire a child through Judah. What a mess. If Judah's story ended there, we would all have a terrible view of Judah. But then we saw how Judah offered himself up as surety to his father for the well-being of Benjamin when they went down to Egypt to buy grain. And it was Judah who stood before Joseph and pled for Benjamin and even offered himself up as a substitute prisoner for his brother Benjamin. Judah was also a man we see in the text of Genesis who knows how to repent Back in Genesis 38, 26, he spoke about Tamar when his own sin was exposed. And he said, she is more righteous than I. 
An amazing thing for a man in this day to say. He had all the power and she had none. And he says, I'm guilty and she is more righteous than I. And he announces that publicly rather than pointing the finger at her for her wrong. And when standing before Joseph, it was Judah who said, God has found out the iniquity of your servants, partly alluding to his and his brother's sin against Joseph. Judah is a man who had a terrible beginning, but he repented of his wrongs. He did not let the rest of his life be defined by those earlier moments of sin and failure. We see throughout the scripture that God is the one who writes last chapters and he writes far better chapters than the messy ones that we write. And we see that here in Judah's case. And this moment of leading his family to Goshen had to be just a wonderful healing moment for Judah. 22 years prior, Judah played a leading role in separating Joseph from his dad. And now here, Jacob is assigning Judah to play a leading role in directing him and the family to the place where Jacob is going to be reunited with Joseph. All in all, we do well to realize, guys, that Genesis 37 up through our present chapter and beyond is not just the story of Joseph. It's also the story of the rise of Judah to be the leader of Jacob's family. The exaltation of Judah will become even greater as the narrative of Scripture continues to unfold. Judah is going to receive a wonderful blessing from his dad in Genesis 49, prophesying that kings will come from him. It will be from Judah that David and Solomon and the other kings of the southern kingdom of Judah will arise. And it will be from Judah that Jesus Christ, the Messiah of the world, will come as well. And we see an early harbinger of that leadership here in Genesis 46 as Jacob appoints Judah to go out in front of the family and lead the family to Goshen where they will meet up with Joseph. Once they arrive in Goshen, the moment comes for Jacob and Joseph to see each other for the first time in 22 years. Just imagine what both Jacob and Joseph must have been feeling at this point. This brings us to the final development in the story of Jacob and his family's big move from Canaan to Egypt. Number five, Joseph and Jacob experience a happy reunion at last. Observe what happens in verse 29. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he, Joseph, appeared before him, Jacob, he, Joseph, fell on Jacob's neck and wept on his neck a long time. I can only imagine what Joseph must have been feeling as he rushed to Goshen to see his father. 
after not having seen him for 22 years. Once he sees his father, 22 years of emotion come gushing out of Joseph and he falls on his father's neck and weeps on his neck for a long time with neither father nor son letting each other go. Joseph is no doubt weeping with joy over seeing his father after so long apart. He's also weeping over the evident toll that he sees that his dad's heartache has had on him. Joseph weeps over the 22 years that they've been apart, yet he's weeping, no doubt, for joy over the fact that they're finally together again in God's amazing providence. Interestingly, nothing is said in the text about Jacob weeping, although we can presume that he did, but we do get an indication of Jacob's feelings in verse 30. Observe what he does, verse 30. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. One of the things you guys notice if, um, as you read the Genesis account is how obsessed Jacob becomes with death ever since Joseph was taken away from him. Back in Genesis 37, 35, Jacob grieved the loss of Joseph and said, Surely I will go down to Sheol or the grave in mourning for my son. When his sons wanted to take Benjamin with them on their second trip to Egypt, Jacob initially refused and said to them in Genesis 42, 38, If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. After Jacob hears that Joseph is alive down in Egypt, Jacob says, I will go and see him before I die. And now here he sees Joseph and his first words are, now let me die. Imagine seeing your father for the first time after 22 years apart and upon seeing you, your father says, now let me die because I've seen your face. I mean, ladies, imagine walking down the aisle to your husband on your wedding day and he sees you coming down the aisle and then he grabs you by the hand when your dad hands you off to him and he says, now let me die because I have seen your face on our wedding day. You'd be like, uh, don't you want to stick around for a while before you go dying on me? And that's perhaps what Joseph might have thought. Don't you want to spend some time together before you go dying on me? That said, the spirit of what Jacob is saying is this. He's saying, my life has now come full circle. My life is now complete. If I never experience another blessing after this one, my life is good and it's complete if I never experience another promise of God fulfilled, if I never experience another answer to prayer, I'm already beyond content. And the truth is, Jacob will live another 17 years. His heart had enough blessing in this moment 
But God is going to give him 17 more years of living in Egypt with Joseph, getting to enjoy Joseph's company and also enjoying his grandchildren through Joseph along with his other 50-plus grandchildren together with everyone else in his family living together with him in the land of Egypt. Jacob had lived with Joseph, get this, the first 17 years of Joseph's life before Joseph was taken from him. And now God sees to it that Joseph and Jacob will be together during the last 17 years of Jacob's life. This is the amazing goodness of God. So Jacob says, now let me die. And God says, not so fast. I'm going to bless you even more. For the next 17 years, Jacob is going to be scratching his head thinking, I don't get this. The goodness of God, I can't comprehend. I do a sinful thing and I idolize my son Joseph and love him more than I do my other sons. And because of my failure as a father, it causes Joseph's brothers to hate him and want to kill him and sell him into slavery down in Egypt. And God uses all of that mess to bring about this outcome? God is awesome. And his grace is amazing, Jacob would be thinking. And that God would cause even my failures as a father to work together for this kind of good is unspeakably wonderful and awesome. Jacob is going to have 17 years to live in Egypt under Joseph's good care to think about how true it is that God truly works all things together for good for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. God is good, amen? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you are an amazingly good God. You cause all things to work together for good for those who are your people. You take the good that they do and weave it together for your glory, but Lord, you even many times take our, our failures and somehow wonderfully you weave even that together to bring about an incredible outcome. You even take the worst sin that all of us have committed, and that is the crucifixion of Jesus. With wicked hands, your son was slain. The worst evils in the history of the world were committed on that day, nailing him to a cross and crucifying him and bringing about his death. And you took all of that mess, Lord, and you brought about the most amazing good that now provides a way of salvation to everyone who looks at your crucified and risen son and believes in him. They might be saved for all of eternity. You are a good God, amazingly good. 
You are a God who does exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. We may find ourselves in moments like Jacob where we're thinking, I'm ready to die. My life is full. It's full enough. If I have another, no other blessing, my life is already complete. And God, you still bless. And then even when we die, eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things you prepared for those who love you. And for all of eternity, you will be blowing us away with your goodness, with your grace, with the bounty of what you provide through Christ. This is all made possible for us, Lord, because even in a passage like today, this isn't just some old story about Jacob and his family. This is a story of rescue, of a great deliverance that came to Jacob and his family so that his lineage through Judah would survive the famine and a nation of Israel could be born and then from that nation would come a Messiah who could bring salvation to anyone today who looks to him and believes in him and calls upon his name. So this passage today, it's our story. It's part of a long, beautiful narrative of how it came about that a Messiah came into the world to bring us salvation. If there is any here today, Lord, who has never put their trust in you, May they know that you, before the foundation of the world, planned this all out. And for thousands of years of human history, you were executing this amazing plan to bring about a Messiah into the world 2,000 years ago who would live a perfect life and die on the cross so that through him, salvation would be offered and available to us. We are all late arrivals to this love story, a love story that was in the works before the world was even created. And we see the strain of this love story working throughout the verses of even this chapter and on through the rest of the Old Testament and into the new all the way down to today that we can have salvation through Jesus. Open our hearts to see this amazing good and to realize and to worship you as the God who has done and will do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or imagine. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you and at this point of our service, and we ask that you would receive these funds and do much with all that is given in this offering for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said,